So wonderful to be reminded in the Lord's Prayer um, that we serve a strong God who does whatever he wants and he's in control. Wasn't well, that very wonderful? And it's wonderful to have jumped ship as the pastor reminded us last week. We can jump ship. We can know the protection and the guidance and the love and the power of the one who is sovereign. It's been wonderful to read in Esther uh, of the story so far. God's people were in grave danger. A royal edict had been issued. On the 13th day of the 12th month, their enemies were permitted to attack and wipe them out. But the tables were turned. A second royal edict was issued, effectively overturning the first one. On the 13th day of the 12th month, God's people would now be permitted to defend themselves against any enemies who would seek to destroy them. We're going to continue in Esther chapter 9 and 10. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict, the edict commanded by the king was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned against the Jews. Sorry, were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandapha, Dalphon, Asfafa, Porapha, Aldalia, Aridapha, Parmasha, Arasai, Aridai, and Vazapha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadapha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. 
An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put, on, put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That, was, that is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when the sor their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman's son of Hamadapha, the Agapite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But the plot came to the king's attention. He issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head. And that, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of that they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family and in every purpose, province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews nor should the memory of them die out amongst their descendants. So, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim as their at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them. 
And as they had this established for themselves and their descendants in regard to the, their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent amongst the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. Thanks, Ronnie. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we pray, please, as we come to your Word, the Bible, please would you teach us, please would you give us understanding, please would you apply this Word to our lives and change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the rescue started with an anonymous letter on the 26th of October. Uh, it alerted the authorities to, to a potential attack on Parliament. Then on the evening of the 4th of November, the House of Lords were searched extensively. What was found? 36 barrels of gunpowder, and standing next to them, one Guy Fox. The gunpowder plot of 1605. And I guess the reason that so many of us know at least something about that at rescue um, is because it has been actively remembered, at least in England it has. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Uh, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder, treason, should ever be forgot. A very, very catchy rhyme. And together with yearly bonfires and fireworks and effigies being burned. Um, that rescue from over 400 years ago has been remembered. A rescue remembered. Well, as we come to the end of the story of Esther, uh, we're going to see a couple of things this morning. We're going to see God's people finally and fully rescued. And then we're going to think about how they came to remember that rescue for generations to come. And hopefully that will um, point us to our rescue in the Lord Jesus, uh, bringing uh, out fresh angles, if you like, on what God has done for us and will do for us, and impress upon us the importance of us remembering our rescue in the Lord Jesus. So, we come to the final two scenes of this story. Firstly, scene 12, rescue complete. And ever since chapter 3, if you can remember back that far, 
the 13th day of the 12th month has been on our radar. Um, Initially, that was a date that filled God's people with terror because that was going to be the date of their destruction. So remember the first edict. I'll just read it for us from chapter 3, which was an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. But of course, ever since Esther boldly and bravely approached the king, and that sleepless night in the palace, the tables have turned. Uh, That day, uh, the 13th day of the 12th month, became like Christmas to God's people. It filled them with joy and anticipation because that day was now going to be the day when they would be fully rescued. So let me just read out the second edict again. It, it, this royal edict from Xerxes granted the Jews in every city on the 13th day of the 12th month the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them, and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. So just to be clear, this second edict doesn't cancel the first edict, but effectively it overturns it, because it gives God's people the permission to defend themselves against any who would uh, seek to kill them. And now in the story, we come to the 13th day of the 12th month, where this whole story has been heading what happens? Well, given that uh, their ringleader, Haman, has been executed, uh, given that the tables have clearly turned, given that God's people have received huge amount of support from, all, from people all over the empire, we might have expected no one to come out on that day to attack them. Who in their right mind would tick them on? But that would be to underestimate the power of hatred. Now that morning, across the empire, on the 13th day of the 12th month, around 76,000 men, if you could call them men, began to psych themselves up to shed innocent blood. They sharpened their swords, their daggers for good measure, put on their knuckle dusters, and pumping with hatred, marched out of their homes to meet with other like-minded brutes. As they gathered, um, perhaps some seethed with anger, too angry even to speak. Perhaps others screamed filthy words of sheer hatred to rile up the group. And then like a pack of wolves, they were off. Their intention to wipe from the face of the planet an entire people group, including their women and children, a people group who had done them no harm whatsoever and posed them no threat at all. That same morning, knowing the threat against them, to them and to their families and neighbors, brave men from among God's people, along with decent upstanding citizens of the empire, got out of bed, put on armor, kissed their kids goodbye, took up weapons, and headed out. Not thirsty for bloodshed, not intent on seeking vengeance, not motivated by land or plunder or anything like that, 
but intent simply and purely on defending their own lives and the lives of their wives and children. And wonderfully, gloriously, God pe God's people prevailed. We read in chapter 9, as the sun goes down in the citadel of Susa, 500 enemy warriors have been killed, Haman's 10 sons included. And in the provinces, 75,000 enemies have been killed. And note that even though the king's edict had given God's people the permission to plunder, not a dime is taken, underlining the fact that God's people are purely and simply defending themselves. In the citadel of Susa, though, at the end of that day, the threat level to God's people is still severe because a significant army of, of enemies are still at large, maybe even plotting further attacks against them. And so Esther comes to the king and asks the king for an extension, a day's extension to the edict. On that day, further 300 men are killed and Haman's sons are impaled on poles. Now, we might just, on first reading, we might just read that and think, hold on, What's, what is Esther doing here? Is that really necessary? And that's a good question. And some uh, very sensible people who read the Bible and take it seriously um, do suggest that maybe here at this point, Esther, who has done good in the story so far, becomes cruel and a bit bloodthirsty. Um, after all, that is possible. Uh, good people uh, with power can become corrupt. You think of King David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And if that is the case, that, the, that Esther here has become cruel and the power has gone to her head, we've just got to acknowledge that. Um, the Bible is, after all, full of flawed heroes. It's why Jesus is so unique. So some people, sensible people who take this seriously, do come to, on to that conclusion. But I'm just not so persuaded that she's cruel. Um, you think about Haman's sons being impaled on, on poles or hung on gallows. That sounds brutal. Um, but we've just got to remember that Haman's sons, they're not ten cute boy scouts. They're already dead from the day before, which means they were part of that murderous, genocidal group that were so intent on wiping out God's people. They may even have been leaders in that group. To have their dead bodies impaled on, on poles, yes, it is bloody, and don't get me wrong, I wouldn't want to see it. But at the same time, it doesn't have send a message to any other would-be mass murderers. You, know, you cannot just attack an innocent people and think that you can get away with it. Or that extra 300 who are killed on that extra day. Again, maybe that sounds brutal to our ears. And it does to mine initially too. But we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of God's people, God's innocent people in Susa. How well would you sleep at night knowing that there were 300 
mercenaries at large in your town, drooling at the thought of attacking you and your wife and your children and your family. Now, I think Esther is really only finishing the job of defending her people properly from this threat of genocide. In any case, the result is relief and safety. The day after God's people rest and feast and rejoice because finally they are safe. No more need for mum to blockade the front door at night in case of, a, in case of attack. Uh, no more need for dad to sleep with one eye open just in case someone breaks in and comes for the kids. No more need for the kids to be hypervigilant all the time in case of ambush. They're safe. Their enemies are now dead. That very real and brutal threat that hung over their lives has been dealt with. Their rescue is now complete. Then scene 13, rescue remembered. Well, on first reading, chapter 10, scene 13, um, it comes across all a bit administrative. Uh, letters being written, decrees being signed to, to establish an annual celebration for God's people. And it doesn't really have the drama of some of the earlier chapters of the book. But actually, it's a really important scene because as we see what they celebrate, we see what this rescue really is about at heart. So what do, what do God's people, what does Mordecai call this annual celebration? What do they call it? They call it Purim. Purim from the word pur, which means lot or dice. This is the festival of dice. So you may, might remember back to chapter 3, when Haman, the great enemy of the Jews, goes and consults a soothsayer, a fortune teller, um, to find out from his gods what would be the best date to enact his, 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 plan, his genocidal plan. And we were thinking back then, perhaps he was hoping for a one and a one, or one and a two, so that he could carry out his evil plan on the second month of the year, or the third month of the year, sometime soon. And we remembered how, in fact, for the twelfth month, giving a huge amount of time for a rescue to be launched and God's people to be saved. Well, in naming this festival, this yearly festival, Purim, as opposed to Mordecai's festival or Esther's festival, Mordecai is saying to his people, you know, it wasn't ultimately Esther or me who brought about this rescue. It was the dice. The dice, of course, symbolic of the hidden hand of God. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So just from the name of this festival, this annual celebration, we see that this rescue is ultimately about God, God rescuing his people by his hidden hand. Or you think about the dates 
of this festival? When, were they, when, when in the year were they to celebrate Purim? What, on what dates? Um, now, we might say to this, ah, easy, 13th day of the 12th month. That's, what, that's the date that we've been talking about for weeks, the date we finally got in our heads, 13th day of the 12th month, that's when they're to celebrate Purim. But what does Mordecai write in verse 21? In his letter, he instructs God's people that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. And that's actually really significant. Because Purim, this celebration, this annual celebration of this rescue, was not about celebrating the day when they got to smash 76,000 enemies and see them die, hooray. It was about celebrating the days after that. The days when they were able to wake up and breathe this great big sigh of relief that the threat that had been hanging over them had been dealt with once and for all. Purim, this, 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 this um, celebration, was about remembering the relief they gained from their enemies. Did you see that phrase a couple of times in these, these, these chapters? They gained relief. So their focus in celebrating is on their own experience rather than that of their enemies. 9.22, he tells us about how they celebrate, how their, their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning was turned to celebration. And so with God's people having been rescued and the... Uh, the wheels in motion for that, that rescue to be remembered year on year, we come finally to the end of this amazing story. God's people celebrating year after year God's hidden-handed rescue of them. Well, what does this teach us all these years later? I want to just highlight two things. Uh, firstly, this calls on us to remember our rescue. Um, unlike God's people at the end of the, the story of Esther, our rescue isn't yet fully complete. Uh, so for us, uh, Christ hasn't yet come back. Our enemies are still to be destroyed. Satan still tempts us and attacks us and lies to us. Our sinful desires still wage war against our souls. Death, that great enemy, still hangs over us. That said, if we're trusting in Christ because of his death and resurrection, so much of the rescue has been accomplished already. We have been forgiven. We have been declared right in God's sight. We have been reconciled to God. We've been given new spiritual life by the Holy Spirit and our future has been guaranteed. So there is much of our rescue that we can and should look back on and remember. And the practice of remembering, which these chapters are all about, is really crucial to a healthy spiritual life. Because if we forget God's rescue of us and what he's done for us, if in our mind, the, the, the cross and the resurrection and what those events achieved 
just become a hazy in our memory. What's going to happen? Well, firstly, my view of God is going to be distorted. I may well begin to think of God as less loving and less powerful than he really is. My view of myself will become distorted. I may start to think of myself as a self-made man or a strong, independent woman, when in reality, I'm, a, I'm someone who's been rescued by the grace of God. If I forget God's rescue or if it becomes hazy in my memory, my view of other people, likewise, will become distorted. Uh, I might think of other people as, as, as needing a bit of practical help, perhaps, or in need of a bit of self-improvement, when in reality, they too need rescuing. So to rightly remember God's rescue of us is really crucial for a healthy spiritual life. How do we remember God's rescue of us? Well, I think the primary way that we remember celebrating the Lord's together, a great memory aid that we need, and we'll do that this evening and take some good time to do that. Do come back tonight. But it's not the only way. Uh, we remember God's rescue by thinking and praying and reading and singing and talking with each other about God's rescue. And in truth, unless we are active and deliberate about, rest, uh, about remembering our rescue, we will quickly forget. You know, if it weren't for Bonfire Night, if it weren't for effigies of Guy Fox and kid, catchy kids' rhymes, most people would forget all about the gunpowder plot of 1605. Let's be those who actively, deliberately remember day after day God's rescue of us in the Lord Jesus. So this teaches us to look back and to remember. And then finally, I think it teaches us to look forward to our rescue, or at least the rest of our rescue to come. So I think chapter 10, um, the joyful scenes of chapter 10, give us a little picture of what our rescue will be like when it is fully and finally complete. It helps us look forward to the day when our enemies, our enemies uh, will, will be destroyed and we will gain relief from them. To the day when Satan and his army will be not just defeated but destroyed. When our own sinful desires which we wage war against our souls will be removed. When death and all of his companions, sickness, sadness and pain will be banished. It helps us, it points us forward to the day when all of the sorrows of this life will be turned to joy. When, as we were thinking about the other week, when all of the sad things will somehow, amazingly, become untrue. When our mourning will turn to celebration. When we will feast forever in the kingdom of God praising God for reaching down into history to rescue us. That's our future for trusting in Christ. And just as it's really important for us to look back and to remember, so also it is rightly important for us to look forward. That lifts our heads, doesn't it? 
when life gets difficult. It lightens our load when the burden of life feels heavy. That the future keeps us from getting distracted when sin sparkles or when the world just lures us in. It fills us with joy and anticipation. And again, how do we look forward? It's by being deliberate about it, by being active, actively thinking and praying and reading and singing and talking with each other about this wonderful future. So we're to look, we're to look back and remember we're to look forward to our, the rest of our rescue with anticipation and joy. And then I just think, just, just finally as we finish this book, I think it is just a call again um, to those uh, maybe even here this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you haven't yet turned from your sin to follow Christ, um, this is um, what you stand to gain. An amazing rescue, a glorious future, relief and joy and freedom and celebration forevermore from those enemies that wage war against us. We'd love you to join us. Uh, to join, uh, to be rescued like we are. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and remember again the Lord Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave to achieve for us the forgiveness of sins, no condemnation, the hope of eternal life, relationship with you. Lord, help us to be deliberate and active in remembering your grace to us um, on the cross. And we pray too, Heavenly Father, that we might be a people who look forward, whose eyes are set on the day of Christ, when full relief will come, when all enemies will be defeated and destroyed, when we will live in safety and joy and freedom forevermore, feasting with you around your table. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.